invite you to join me as we pray together. Father, we would pause right now and we would come before you and come before your throne. The psalmist tells us that you're the great king above all gods. That you've created us. You are recreating us after the image of Christ. That you are solely responsible, not only for our being here, but for our gathering together this morning as your worshipers. The Word clearly paints the picture, O Lord, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we would have remained in our deadness were it not for your inexhaustible love for us. Were it not for your sending your Son into the world, we would have remained lost and without hope. And so we thank you for sending the great Reconciler. And Father, this morning it's because of his work that we come to worship you. Father, as we gather, as every one of us walked through the doors this morning, we came sinners. We come bearing our sin. We come even still bearing guilt and shame. Our sins we've recently committed and or sins that go way back in our past. And so this morning, Father, we confess our sin. The Word tells us that if we confess our sins, that You are faithful and You are just and You will forgive us. Father, what good news that is. What glorious news it is to know that You will separate our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. You will remember them no more. And Father, we claim that promise. We hold tightly onto it. Because even though you've redeemed us, even though you've bought us with the blood of Christ, even though you have counted us as righteous because of his work, Father, we know the reality is that each and every day we sin. And so thank you for forgiving. Thank you for the long walk that you are on with us. Thank you for being a covenant-pursuing God, a covenant-faithful God, who has promised And you will carry on to completion to the day of Christ Jesus that work that you've begun in us. Father, there is no greater news than to know that you are in it with us for the long haul. And so we praise you. We thank you for that. Father, we want to pray this morning as we think about the world in which we live. We want to pray for this community. Father, we want to pray for the three cities that are nearby for their pulpits this morning. We ask that the gospel will be proclaimed. Father, we pray for those churches right here in the Lake Oconee area. Father, we ask that you would let the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ ring loud and clear throughout this community. And so we pray for their people. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who worship in other locations. And we ask, Father, uh, that together they would see the body of Christ loving lost people in the Lake Oconee area. Father, we want to pray for our nation. Uh, We thank you for the country in which we um, get to live and we get to worship. We get to move and have our being. We recognize even as we pray for our nation, that we are a part of your kingdom, 
a much bigger kingdom, a, a kingdom that extends all around this globe that knows no boundary, no uh, ethnicity is excluded, no tongue, no language, nothing for you are Lord over all. And yet you've placed us here, and so we would pray for our country. We would ask, Father, that you would continue to let your grace and mercy shine upon us. Father, we pray for a continued faithful witness to Christ in our country. And, um, and Father, we pray for our government. We pray for our leaders. We ask, oh Lord, that you would give them all they need, that they would continue to provide so that we may exercise um, in freedom the calling that Christ has placed upon us. Father, we pray for our military. We pray for our men and women who seek to uh, honor this nation and the calling that's upon them. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would be with them. We pray for the many chaplains that are ministering the gospel this day. And, Father, we ask that they would extend the hope of Christ to those men and women in uniform. Father, we pray for their families as they're left behind, for those who are serving elsewhere. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you will be a faithful God to them in the midst of their separation. Father, we want to pray this morning as well for our families. We want to thank you for our children. And we ask, Father, that you will be at work in their lives and that you will be nurturing the next generation who will live and follow and will bring glory to you, who will live before your throne in all they do. And, Father, may we hold the good example, uh, not that we have a righteousness of our own, but that we are dependent upon the righteousness of Christ. So would we faithfully confess our sin before them? Would they see our struggles, our failures, our need, and that they would be free to run after the Savior right along with us? And, Father, in that vein, we want to thank you for our mothers. Father, uh, whether good mothers or bad mothers, whether the struggle of motherhood, whether they were short-lived with us, no matter, we want to thank you. We want to bless you for the gift of our mothers and for uh, what they do. Uh, Father, a difficult task, and yet they often um, do it with grace. And so we pray for them, that you would sustain them, nurture them. Lord, give them all that they need for their current calling in life. And Father, would we honor them? Your word calls us to honor our parents, our mothers. And so we want to do that, and we want to do it faithfully. Father, we pray now for the word. We thank you for the promise that as it's preached, it will not return void, but will produce the harvest that you have planned and advanced. And so we ask, O oh Lord, let it be faithful this morning. I pray that uh, you will give me all the right words to say, that your word would be faithfully proclaimed to your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I think it says this is the time where I'm going to preach or something like that. If you've got your Bibles, I invite you to find them and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to uh, spend a little time in the first 11 verses. And I'll just tell you, this is a sermon that um, I preached two weeks ago at my home church. I thought rather than uh, try and write one, there would be a temptation uh, for me to write a sermon that may um, be something other than what I normally do. That's a human tendency we have, isn't it? And so um, my thought was that I would just preach uh, a passage that I've recently preached. And um, 
and that way you get a sense of what it is that I normally do week to week. That's uh, fair to you and fair to me, and hopefully it'll be honoring to the Lord and it'll be edifying to all of us. So Philippians chapter 3 is where I want to take you, and uh, let's read the Lord's Word together. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ." the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. It truly lights the path and is a lamp unto our feet. And so we thank you for it. And Lord, we pray this morning that as we come to it, that we would leave this morning changed by it. And only you and only the work of your Spirit can do that. And so I pray, Father, that um, the meditations of our hearts and the words of my lips would be acceptable in your sight for your glory. Amen. Well, we talked a little in Sunday school about football. Tommy brought up football a little bit a few minutes ago, so let's talk a little more football, okay? A couple of weeks ago, there was some really big news in the football world. There's a guy, his name is Tim Tebow. Anybody heard of Tim Tebow? So Tim Tebow was picked up by the Philadelphia Eagles. Chip Kelly brought Tim Tebow in. we got a big Tebow fan here. The Philadelphia Eagles brought Tim Tebow in to give him a tryout. And so, again, all of the speculation started, and um, what, was this, what, what would transpire as Tim Tebow went to the Philadelphia Eagles? Now, for you non-football fans, the one or two of you who are here, um, when Tebow graduated from college and was going into the draft, everyone said he, he, he was good in college, he wasn't going to make it in the pros because of his throw. And this big looping throw that he, and, and all sorts of wasted energy and time and so on. And so the, the word on the street was Tim Tebow can't throw. And so 
what he did was he went to a quarterback coach. And the guy that he went to was a guy named Tim House. And recently I heard an interview with Tim House on ESPN Radio. I spent a little bit of time in the car and, and, I, and I got to hear Tim House talk about the way in which he works, not just with Tim Tebow, with all quarterbacks. And it was fascinating stuff. Because what he does is they bring, uh, first, uh, over the years, what they've done is they've taken video of all of the greats, all of the great quarterbacks, and they, they took, they've taken video and they've broken their, their throw down. And then they took all of that computer-generated breakdown and they put it into a composite. And so they have the perfect quarterback in their computer system. And so then they bring in a guy like Tebow and they have him throw the football and they, they hook him all up and they take thousands, literally hundreds of thousands of pictures from every conceivable angle. And then they feed that into their computer and it spits out, a, a, it spits out their model. And then they take the two and they blend them together and they tell the guy, okay, now this is what you've got to do in order to be like this. And usually it's just 15% or so. Most of the throws there, I mean, how many of you all know how to throw a ball? Yeah, we all know how to throw a ball. And Tim Tebow knows how to throw a ball. But he doesn't know how to throw a ball perfectly. And so they break it all down. And, and what Tim House said was amazing. Because you think, okay, quarterback's coach, this guy's going to be right alongside him the entire way. And that isn't it at all. He said, look, what I do is... I take the quarterback or the pitcher, whoever it is, and I tell them what it is they have to do in order to be there. I give them the information they need, and then they go and they throw the ball. That's it. And so Tim Tebow went initially out of college, and he threw footballs. And he threw a few footballs. What Tim House said was, you have to throw so many that it changes your DNA. So that you become a different person, literally. You become a different thrower. You train your DNA to change is really what happens. And he said, you have to do a lot of footballs. Well, what happened out of college was Tebow did and he went and then he got picked up and he, and he went and he got thrown into some game situations and what happened? It looked exactly like it did early on. And so he didn't make it. And so what he's done now for years, literally years, is he's thrown footballs. Tens of thousands of footballs. In order that he might change his DNA. In the passage that we just read as we start, the Apostle Paul is encouraging us, essentially, to throw footballs. He wants us to just... Begin to do the repetition. And that's why he comes to them and he says, look, there is a group of individuals out here um, and, and they're challenging you. And so in verse 1 he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. No trouble. It is no trouble for me to write this to you, what? Again. Again. Okay? It's the repetition. And what he's going to do, what he does in this, these 11 verses is he gives them the gospel, the good news. He breaks down that good news for them again. And, and, and what it is, is there's a challenge, okay? They're thrown into the game situation. What happens when you get thrown into the game situation? You go back to your old habits. You go back to your own patterns. You're tempted to, you're tempted to be what you were, what you once were. 
to depend, perhaps, on things that you used to depend upon instead of what you know to be the truth. And so Paul says, I want to remind you about the gospel once again. And it's no trouble. It is no trouble for me to do it. In fact, what does he say? It's a safeguard for you. He wants to put guardrails up for them so that they don't forget who they are. They don't forget the gospel that brought them and bought them. And he wants them to stay on track. And so we want to look at this this morning. We want to break this down this morning because as we do it, though it's repetitive, it is good for us. It's like throwing the football over and over and over. Harry Reeder, the pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church over in Birmingham, Alabama, I think he's the one that coined this phrase, that the gospel is the foundation, the motivation, it's the foundation, the formation, and the motivation of the Christian life. Here's the deal. You will never, in the Christian life, we never, ever leave the gospel. You don't leave it by, it doesn't just save you and then you go do all the work yourself. It isn't a self-help tool. It is, it is all of life for the believer. We never leave it, we never forget it, we never get away from it, we never grow out of it. And so let's look at what he tells us here in this passage. And I want to begin back in verse 10 and 11, kind of at the end. And what I want you to see there is that the Apostle Paul identifies really the righteousness that we need. The righteousness that we need. What, what does Paul long for? Well, let's look at what he longs for. He says in verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Verse 11, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. What is it that the Apostle Paul is longing for? What is he looking towards? He's looking towards the resurrection from the dead. He is looking, he wants in the power of Christ to know that resurrection and and. And to become like Christ, he says, in his death. Well, what is, what is that? I mean, that's, that, we don't kind of use that language. So what is it that Paul's saying? What does he long for? He longs for heaven. He longs to be with his heavenly Father. He longs for a day after death. He longs for the moment he closes his eyes to be in the presence of Almighty God. And to be received. That's what he longs for. That's what he wants. How many of y'all want that? Amen, right? Yeah. We want that. Well, that's what the Apostle Paul wants. And so we have to ask the question. You have to ask the question. Well, what would stand between you and that? What, is, what potentially stands between a person and a right relationship with God? Well, we would identify, probably, the first thing you'd probably say is, well, forgiveness of my sin. Absolutely. But right next to that, squeezed right into it, never separated from it, you can't break the two apart, is you, when you stand before God, the thing that really is going to stand between you is a righteousness. You've got to be righteous. You have got to have a righteousness. It's, it's demanded to be in the presence of God. 
And so the Apostle Paul is identifying, he's really identifying that there's something there that he needs that is going to allow him on the final day to be in the presence of God. And so he's identifying it in this passage. We need righteousness. We have to have right. It's not enough. You got to hear this. It's not enough to just be forgiven of your sin. If that's the only part of the gospel you hear and know and, and are, are ready to give away, guess what? You're giving away about half of the good news. Forgiveness of sins is absolutely necessary. But, as I often say, that really kind of only gets you to the, to the, to the even line. Now what, now what is going to commend you to God? And so Paul lays out his hope and his passion, what it is that he wants. And as he does that, he's really identifying the fact that we need this righteousness. Now here's the problem. Righteousness is what we need. But at the beginning of this passage, the Apostle Paul identifies that righteousness is also our biggest stumbling block. Righteousness is also our biggest stumbling block. It is the problem that we have. It's the problem that every creature ever created has. Is that we have our own resume. We've got our own list of our righteous deeds that we're willing to offer up. We're willing to give them. Let's just look at it. So what the Apostle Paul is identifying is, right, verse 2, is that there were some folks who were coming along who were telling them, listen, there are some religious things that you've got to do. There, and for them, it was circumcision. It may be baptism. It may be some sort of work, good works. You can fill in the blank. But they were saying there's some things, and Paul calls them dogs, men who do evil, mutilators of the flesh. And he, and he says... Essentially, when he says in verse 3 that we're the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ, and what? Put no confidence in the flesh. Very important phrase. Because what he's saying is we're the group that worship God, who glory in Christ, and we do it by putting no confidence in the flesh. That is, in our resume. But notice what he says next. Verse 4. This is his own confession. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. So what Paul says is, listen, if, if we're going to talk about merit, if we're going to talk about reasons to put confidence in ourselves, I've got a bunch of reasons. And these are the reasons that he existed on for a long time. Now here's what you've got to know. Before Paul came to Christ, he saw himself as completely right with God. In fact, zealously right with God. Look at what he says. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Doesn't get any better than that. He, wasn't bor- he was born into this deal. He didn't buy into it. He, didn't, he was not a Johnny-come-lately. He was there on the eighth day of his life. I was of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a loved tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews, He says, in regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. You all have heard that word Pharisee before. Bad, well, ah, Pharisees, ah, 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 ah. Right? Pharisees, they have a really bad, we've given them a bad rap. You know what? You would love to live next to a Pharisee. Okay? You would. I was said in the Air Force on active duty. 
you, <laughs> if you've ever lived on a military ins- installation, it's the funniest thing. But in the housing area, they had a housing inspector that would come by and check your lawn. Okay, so he, he would come by with a ruler, if needed, and check your lawn to make sure it was mowed to the right height. And then when you brought your can down, your trash can down to the street and they picked up your garbage, it had to be up by the end of the day. You had to have that can up by the end of the day. And so listen, uh, all these extra rules, and, and, and you would love to live next to a Pharisee because he would follow all the rules. He's the perfect neighbor. He never plays a stereo too loud. He's very thoughtful. He's a rule follower. How many of y'all like, y'all like rules? And this guy obeys the speed limit. He does it by the book. He does everything by the book. And Paul says, I was a Pharisee. Verse 6, you want to question my zealousness? I persecuted the church. He believed so strongly he was right with God and what he believed was right that he persecuted Christians. He oversaw their death. He was zealous. Look, there are a lot of zealous people in the church. Zealousness doesn't, doesn't get it. Then he says next, as for legalistic righteousness, near faultless. Faultless. There was, you couldn't hold a candle to this guy. See, that was Paul's world. That's what Paul was, that's where he existed. He lived in that world where he kept his resume. This is his personal resume where he, would, he could hold it out and say, these are the things that commend me to God. Now, what does a resume do? One author you know, talks, uses this resume language, and, and resumes open doors for us, don't they? That's what a resume does. When you, when you come out of high school, you've built a high school resume in order to go to college. And so you have to have an SAT score that's so high or an ACT score that's so high. And they want to see leadership and they want to see the classes that you took and they want to see your grades. And so you put this little package together and you send it off to the wonderful college of your choice. And they write you back and say, yeah, you have the right qualifications to get into our institution. Or they write back and say, no, you've got to do better in order to get here. And then when you come out of college, what do you do? Well, you scramble to put put together your resume and you show them all of the extracurricular activities you've done and the leadership you've had and the classes that you took and you you proudly, either proudly or not so proudly, you put those grades there. If you didn't do so well, you omit those grades because you want them to think well of you. You want that, that resume to be your picture. And so you put it out there and you show them where you interned and where you did so and so. All the stuff was true on my resume. I didn't, I didn't build it up or anything, but <laughs> I don't think. But I sent a resume over here. And trust me, I highlighted all of the things that I thought, you know, were good things about me. I didn't put any of the bad stuff in there. They asked. But, but that's what resumes do. Resumes open doors. And that's essentially what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's putting forward his resume And he put forward his resume for a long period of his life and he said, here, God, accept this resume from me. 
and receive me on the basis of this resume. And that's the way he lived until he met Jesus. And you know what's amazing? Is there are actually stories in the Bible about other people that have done this. I want to take you to a couple of them. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. It's a familiar story. We're not going to just completely exposit it, but we're going to hit a high point. Luke chapter 15 has a story of... It's actually... Actually, Luke 15 has three stories. And they're all tied together. You're most familiar with the last one, and it's the parable of the prodigal son, which is really a parable of the older brother. Three parables about something lost. And in the parable of the lost son, the parable of the prodigal son, as we call it, you remember the story. The the youngest son asks for his portion of the inheritance early, which is a complete offense. But the father graciously gave it to him, and he went off and he squandered it. And, um, and he lived like a rank pagan. And he got so low at one point that he was eating the pods that he was feeding the pigs. That's pretty low for a Jewish kid, okay? And, uh, and so he was at the lowest of the low of low. And he comes to his senses. His hunger drove this return to the father. And so he thought about all the things he would say. He rushes home to the dad. The dad sees him coming down the road. He goes out to meet him, puts the ring on, and they they you know, let's have a big party. And that's what they're going to do. But the rest of the story is that there's an older son. There's another son in this parable. And that, honestly is the focus of the parable. And if you'll take a look, you'll see in verse 25 that we get the story of this older son. He says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and he came near the house, and he heard the music and dancing. Verse 26, So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he, is, because he has him back safe and sound. Verse 28, The older brother became angry, and he refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. Verse 29. But he answered the father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and I never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf. What do you see there? Well, we see an older son who stayed behind and did it just by the book, didn't he? So you see, there's two ways. There's two ways um, to be separated from the father. One is by irreligion. This is a Tim Kellerism. One is by irreligion. That is, you go off and you squander the father's inheritance on prostitutes and wine and whatever else. That's what the younger son did. But then there's another way, and it's called the way of religion. And that's what the Apostle Paul's talking about in Philippians 3. And that's what the older brother was doing. The older brother was there, and he was slaving away for his dad. And he was doing it all by the book. And he was building that resume. And then when the younger son came home and got the same treatment, he was angry. Because here he had been doing it by the book and he never got any of that special treatment. 
He never got that extra love. There's another parable, or there's another story that I want to take you to. Luke chapter 18. If you'll turn just over a little bit. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 18. It's the story of the rich young ruler. And um, begins in verse 18. He comes, he asks Jesus, what must I do? That's a bad question right away. Um, what must I do? The emphasis really is on do there. And Jesus says in verse 19, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't give false witness. Honor your mother and father. Verse 21, the young man says, all these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. And when Jesus heard this, read between the lines. When Jesus heard this, he put his finger right on the thing that mattered most to this man. And he said um, to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. And it says that when he heard this, he became very sad. See, he comes to Jesus, and essentially what he's saying is, look, I've, I've got a pretty good resume. What is the last thing that I need to put on here in order to be right with God? And Jesus says, here's what Jesus is really saying. You need to get rid of this in order to be right with God. And he couldn't. And they went away sad. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. That's the way he lived his life. That's the way that he went about doing. Listen, we are resume builders by nature. We love to put forward our resume. We do it all the time. We do it formally and we do it informally. We do it in lots of informal ways when we go out and um, we join clubs and, and we want to be in the right crowd and all those sorts of things. We're, we are resume builders. There's just no two ways about it. And, and part of it is because that's just the way we have to communicate in society and that's okay. But we take it to an extreme and what happens is it crowds into our lives as well when we think about a relationship with God and we're prone to want to show off our resume to Him. Look at all the things I've done. Well, that leads us um, to think about who we are in light of what has been done for us. I hope you see that tendency in your own life. Sometimes it's, hard to, sometimes it's hard to accept that. Sometimes it's hard to say, Lord, I'm a resume builder. I'm really rotten on the inside. There's a story that was told about a, a young girl, five years old. She's with her grandma. And so they're together and they're doing something. And the little girl looks at her grandmother and says, Grandmother, are you rotten? And the grandmother says, Why, no dear why why would you say that and she says because when apples get wrinkly on the outside that means they're rotten on the inside now listen there's a lot to be learned from that isn't there where we we are rotten on the inside right the outside Sometimes we, you know, sometimes it gives us away, but not all the time. And so we ask this question, right? Are you willing, have you gone there? Have you acknowledged that you're rotten on the inside? Still, still rotten on the inside. 
How many of y'all are in Christ today? That's got to be your confession. I'm still rotten on the inside. And that's where the Apostle Paul takes us. He takes us next and finally to the gift of righteousness that God gives. Notice what he says after he's gone through all of this, verse 7. He says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, right? So all the stuff I considered profit, throw it away. It's loss. It's not, there's nothing there for me. And I, and I lose it for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, what's more, I consider everything lost to com- compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. And then he says this, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. How many of you are familiar with what that word really is? Some of you? They didn't rubbish. It's a word we don't use in, in nice, polite conversation. Okay? And it refers to, it's dung. It's a graphic, graphic, in the Greek, it's skubala, which sounds bad in the Greek. So you know it's probably bad in the English. And our translators often don't want to give us the unvarnished. But the Apostle Paul says, I consider all of these things that I've done. I consider all of my good deeds. I consider all of my hard work. I consider all of that dung. And then what does he say? That I may gain Christ. Verse 9 is your key. If you've got your Bible and if it's not marked, you've got to mark it. Become a marginal Christian today. All right? Right in your margin. Verse 9. And be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes by God and is by faith. What a beautiful picture. That's where the Apostle Paul just lays it out for us. I want to be found in Christ having a righteousness not my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from God and is by faith. Now, how does that happen? The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 lays it out in a very succinct way, and this is the way he says it. He said, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we may be the righteousness of Christ in him. God made him who knew no sin that we may be the righteousness of God. Here's what happens. We'll close with this. Remember, Paul's pushing on us. Remember this. No trouble for me to write this to you again. On the cross, when Jesus died, the Bible tells us that he took upon himself Every sin that would ever be committed by every person that would ever trust in him. And so on the cross, Jesus was treated by God the Father as if he committed every sin of every person who would ever trust in him. Right? He died for what? My sin. That's what we say. And when we say that, what we're saying is on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had committed all my sin. He treated him that way. He poured out his wrath on him that day, and he took my punishment. Here's the good news, the other half that Paul's telling us here, and it's this. 
that in that very same transaction when you trust in Christ, God the Father now looks at you and me and He treats us as if we had lived and done and performed every righteous deed that Jesus had ever performed. So on the cross, He looked at Jesus and He treated Him as if He committed our sin. And in our salvation, He looks at us and He treats, treats us as if we had lived the righteous life of Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul says what? Thanks be to God. the righteousness of Christ that comes to us. And here's the thing, right? Here's what this does for us day in and day out. How can you not live with the boldness, with the amazing boldness that the Creator of the universe has looked at you and said, I love you. And I receive you because of the righteousness of Christ. You're my son. You're my daughter. When the, creation of the, when the creator of the universe looks at you and says that, there's no looking back. What can anybody do to you? What could anybody think about you? What could anybody say to you that would undercut what the creator of the universe has already declared about you? That's pretty good stuff, isn't it? That, that's bold living kind of stuff. That's the kind of stuff that transforms us and, and lets us live free of what people think about us and lets us live free about, instead of always being concerned about who we are and what we're doing and what we look like. It's a challenge. Don't get me wrong. But that's why the Apostle Paul comes to us and says, think upon these things. It's no trouble for me to write them to you again. And as we come to this message, as we meditate on this gospel, this good news, the more we do it, the more often we come, the more we drink from this well, it's like throwing footballs over and over and over again. And Lord willing, it's changing our DNA for His glory and for our good. Let's pray. Father, thank You this morning for the good news, the gospel. It has come to us and given us such a great hope. We thank you. We praise you this morning for it. And we ask, O oh Lord, as we go, that it will be upon our mind and, and it will be on our lips, that we'll be willing and uh, faithful to share it. But more than that, Father, that we will cling to it and it will shape and form our lives. We thank you for the righteousness of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.